So we're getting uh, close to the end of this series, which will finish the year out. But nevertheless, I think this is uh, after tonight, there'll be only two other talks. <clears throat> and for those of you who are new or relatively new to this series, or to meditation itself, it may feel a little bit like a drowning experience. Uh, because we're, we've been in this topic, on this topic for a couple of years, and so many of the people here that you're sitting beside are very used to the themes and the uh, meanings that, of the different words that I'm going to be offering, but you may not be. And the, the, the point I would uh, make is for you not to be discouraged by whatever you hear, like you're out of your depths, like walking into a graduate physics course or something where you're thinking, oh my god. Uh, actually, if we, you had uh, heard the definitions all along the way, you would feel very comfortable quite likely by now. But the point is, is that uh, just let your pores open and just say, hmm, just be curious about what you hear rather than frustrated about what you don't understand. And I think that this uh, could have a beneficial effect no matter how or when you began your meditation. And so uh, tonight we're ex uh, again exposing the theme of um, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And this particular talk is entitled The Application of Discernment. The Application of Discernment. Uh, and I, what I'm going to do, uh, because in the fourth foundation, uh, if you read it, it just gives you a whole series of of, of uh, lists to be aware of as, as they materialize in your consciousness, like the Four Noble Truths and the uh, Seven Factors of Enlightenment and on and on. So tonight I'm going to bring one of those lists up and we're going to make a contact or make a connection with the discernment that we've already talked about. We're going to meet it with a discerning mind. And it may look very differently than how the sutta seems to to me, it feels like, you know, you're sort of on guard all the time in the suit, making sure that uh, I, I see a version, I see this, I see that. And it may be a very different, relaxed, receptive pose that I'm proposing for this meeting of the hindrances and discernment. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, but as a preamble to the talk, I'd like to just emphasize the fact that really spirituality and all of its different forms and expressions is really a question of the identity of our own identity. Who are we? What's going on here? What's our place in life? That's what spirituality tries to fl flesh out. And it's an extremely important question, but we can approach it in a way that doesn't invite a curiosity or an introspection at all. And most of us have that question on our lips most of our life because we don't have a sense of who we are. And we think that by externalizing our life and accomplishing, being productive, doing the things that we're told to do and learning what we need to learn, that somehow we will then have a better sense of ourselves at the end of our life. And so this externalization, this need to constantly manufacture new images for ourselves, new accomplishments, new qualities, uh, new skills, is sort of the way that most people on the face of the earth uh, 
seek out their identity. Well, in spiritual work, we have had enough of that. We see that that really isn't a satisfactory way to uh, arrive at the answer of what we are or our place on earth. What we get through our externalization is really the comparison of how good we are compared to the other people we're competing against. And that doesn't provide a very resolute answer or a very satisfactory answer at all. So we realize that we have to go deeper. And there's a fear component there because it questions the very foundation on which our life is built when you are no longer uh, conceding the cultural point of view of what life is about and pulling back and bringing the question into a, a deeper level of yourself. And bringing a perception, bringing awareness back into oneself as an answer to this perplexing question of our identity bringing it back in and looking profoundly and directly at our sense of self rather than just acting from our sense of self and hoping that will give us some kind of satisfactory conclusion. So this, this is a, um, an opportunity for us to do just that. And I think the four foundations of mindfulness are an attempt by the Buddha to build systematically that orientation to our spiritual journey. What's your body? What is your body? You think you know it so well, do you even abide in it? Are you even around it? Right? I mean, so the encouragement from day one of this sutta is to come back into ourselves. Is the energy going this way rather than externalizing? And if you think you know yourself so well, watch how you're built. Watch, what, watch the found fundamental building blocks of the nature of who you are. And you can see those in the second foundation of the sense of, of the feelings that we uh, grasp and try to maintain and try to nourish. And from those comes a, an encouraging uh, narrative around those pleasant feelings as we try to build a foundation of solidity from the feelings that we're having about something. And, and then but, but, but that is meant for us to see how it is that we take ourselves to be solid when, in essence, we are not. And so then the third foundation really begins to show us the, uh, our own translucence, our own porous quality. Uh, and because it starts allowing us to see the presentations of the mind as just this, and adding nothing to that. And when there is just this, there's very little, and there's very little that you're adding. When you're not, we're not adding very much, we're not very uh, formed. We're not very defined. The more we add, the more defined we are. The more outraged you are, the more defined you are as a person. The more uh, uh, content, tranquil, calm, you are, the more relaxed you are, the less defined you are as a person. In fact, uh, if you take that to its extreme, you vanish at some point. <laughs> so we never take it to the extreme. <laughs> Vanishing meaning that what? It's a simple uh, echo back of who we think we are. The constant conversation we're having about ourselves, telling ourselves who we are, 
quiet. Nothing else leaves the scene except the resounding uh, echo chamber of in the convincing uh, sounds of our image being echoed back. That's all that emptiness ever means. It's empty of noise. And that's also empty of image. And that is the definition of self. And so as we, as we set aside our willingness to impose our, our noise and reaction upon life, it gets quite quiet and quite empty. It's nothing, there's nothing surprising in that, really. Once you've gone through it a few times, it's not surprising. It's like, okay, this feels a lot better this way. And you don't lose anything. You gain a lot. You think you're going to lose your life? You don't gain, lose your life. You gain your life. Your life isn't it's in noise. isn't in noise. It's in stillness. That's where life meets itself. So you gain your life. Everlasting life, as the Christians say. Okay, so uh, then the fourth foundation is to abide within that emptiness, to get a feeling for, for the possibilities. What does it look like? What, is a, what does an organism look like based in that emptiness? That, and a quality of that emptiness is discernment, is the ability to see. Discernment is the only thing that sees. You think you're seeing you're not seeing. Discernment is seeing. You're claiming reference to that. You say, I see. You're not seeing. That's a complete misnomer. Discernment sees, awareness sees, and you think into that discernment, you think into that awareness that you are the one that's seeing, and you claim ownership of the seeing. That's to give you reference within the scene, so that you'll have a place within the scene, so that you can claim that you are somewhere within that scene. But there's just seeing. If you don't claim a place or reference within it, there's just this. Just this. So as we go through this, and we're talking about what seeing sees, not what you're, you and I add to the scene, that's our thought. You see, the thought is what defines us as being separate from the scene. That's why we say, I see. There's me and then there's the scene that I do. But that's just the thought we invest in the scene so that we have a placeholder for ourselves within that scene. So this fourth foundation is to clear out all the confusion that we have within the seeing, within the discernment. I call it discernment because it discerns. <laughs> it's not like, you know, there's wisdom. The wisdom of life is there. It's just, it's not, it's an intelligent seeing. Let's really put it that way. It's seeing with intelligence, not your intelligence. It's, but it's intelligent. And so, but we keep putting our own intelligence. See, what, what does our own intelligence look, look like? Our own intelligence looks like opinions. That's our, that's our, that's what we invest in the scene is our opinions. And then we can claim, well, I know that. I've seen that before. 
And that echoes back the fact that we have, are three-dimensional because we have not only seen it now, but we still saw it once before. And if I can claim I existed back then, I must exist now. So our memory serves the purpose of giving us a three-dimensional quality within the scene that we can claim reference to. In the past, I was this and saw that. Now you're drowning. <laughs> it's hanging there. <laughs> It actually gets very, gets, it may not get interesting to you, but it's interesting to me. <laughs> so it's also, I just want to, I bring, I like to bring science in it because I think science really gives us some additional credibility when our doubt is uh, so strong in this culture and we see science is paralleling our own insights. We go, well, I can't be that off. So the first uh, law of thermodynamics is the fact that in any closed system, the energy in that system remains constant. Now thought creates, when we think the world, we create a virtual reality within that thought. If you look around, and most of us in this room will see the virtual reality we created by our thinking. Everything we see and have identified with is our thought-laced um, reality. It's not the true one. It's a closed system. So it's very interesting what happens to thoughts in a closed system when you apply the first law of thermodynamics, that all the energy within that system stays contained within the system. Because when a thought dissipates within that system, it goes back and forms another thought. There's no releasing of that energy into something else. It stays within the virtual reality of its closed system. Now, I find that very interesting because one of the ways that thought forms itself within that closed system is the thought that it wants to know more. And therefore, knowing more stimulates more thinking. And have we ever known enough? Do we ever know enough? And so there's a struggle even within our knowing because the energy keeps reforming itself as thought and thought reforms itself as a not knowing enough. Just try to get a sense of what I'm saying. Some of you are... So you think, okay, so if the body dies, Right? The body's going to die, and so this whole system will collapse on itself, and all the energy will dissipate into something else. Well, not so. We're sneakier than that. We start thinking about an afterlife, even before the afterlife occurs. And then I sense, I intuitively feel, that as the body dies, the thoughts that we have created from this side of death continue on because it still remains a closed system and the consciousness continues on the other side. And now we have laced the other side with our heavens or with our reincarnations if you want to get personally Buddhist. Some system that will keep us going because the energy just maintains itself. See, we never rarely allow ourselves to break out of this virtual reality. It is a closed system. 
And it's not until we begin to struggle within this, like we're gasping air, you know, it's like suddenly you realize you're a fish and you're in water and you can't breathe air. And you start going to the surface that you break out of this. And so what insight is, are small openings within this virtual reality. But unfortunately, after we have the insight, we form thought about it, comes back into a closed system and regenerates more thoughts that we just had an insight. The moment of insight is an actual movement outside of the reality that we've created. But the thoughts that then assume an elaboration of that insight take you right back in to the virtual reality. And there we are again. So we won't let ourselves leave. There's no one pinning us in. There's no one chaining us to it. We refuse to move out of this virtual reality because, quote, our lives, meaning our lives of thought, are at stake. Now, a serious practitioner at some point has to reach the willingness to be quiet. They have to come to that because that's the only way this system decomposes or implodes or whatever. Because it's sustained with thought. Once thoughts, energy, is no longer invested in more thinking, which just feeds upon itself as I've mentioned, then the energy itself explodes outward into a different paradigm completely into the sacred. Not into this anymore. I mean, you can, still, you can still enter this view, but it's not the predominant view you wish to dwell. Because it's, it's like jail. So this sense of discernment is an extraordinarily important one. And knowing that discernment is the thing that sees. And discernment that sees, the seeing, is absolutely quiet. Okay, follow this, please. So if you invest in the seeing, you will be quiet. If you invest in what you see, in the elaboration of what you see, you'll be noisy. You'll be in a, these are the reality shifts. But if you just release to the seeing itself, the discernment itself, the abiding intelligence itself, then it gets very quiet very quickly. And we do that simply through our willingness not to infuse or invest in the elaboration of my story and narrative about the world I'm seeing. That's what gives us a sense of us participating in this virtual reality and that's what has to come to an end for us to be able to move out of, for lack of a better phrase, this confinement. So the Buddha is offering us an escape route in this fourth foundation. 
but he's doing it through the only porthole that he has available. Through the quiet of seeing itself. In the third foundation, he says, just this, just this. When you see something, it's just this. Don't elaborate on it. Don't say anything about it. Let it be just what it is. Add nothing to this moment. Add nothing to this moment. The recognition of how our thoughts keep us in prison is the way out of thought. How do we come to that recognition? By seeing what thought does to us. Seeing is the way out, not thinking. We try to get out by thinking our way out. Oh, I understand what just happened. My God, if I don't do that anymore, then everything will be okay. So the next time this happens, that's what I'll apply. When that's happened, well, here it comes again. Okay, I'm ready. You see? <laughs> that's not seeing. What's seeing in this moment? Not who is seeing. That's irrelevant. What is seeing? And you can hear the quiet in the room as that takes hold. And you can see how close this is. How far away can seeing be, for God's sake? It's almost comical, isn't it? How we chase and pursue the sacred when it's as close as the seeing itself. That's how skewed we've had this whole thing. That's what the virtual reality will make it. It will make it into a project because that keeps the virtual reality moving as a virtual reality. It keeps the thing going. And so we'll make that which is sacred a project. And there should be a smile on your face. So at some point, there's a sobriety test here. You want to keep thinking? Keep thinking. Nobody's doing it to you. You can just keep thinking all the way around. If you think you can think out of your thoughts, think your way out of your thoughts, have a go. I'll catch you on the next round. <laughs> but if you're tired of that, I mean deeply fatigued, not just irritated at it, but deeply fatigued by it, then there's a different way out of this thing. And that's the point of all spiritual work. And it is an identity crisis. Because our identity as we know it is only carried within this virtual reality. It is not carried in silence. Life is carried in silence, not an image. An image is a thought about life. It's not life itself. Life itself is carried in silence. 
And it's a very, discernment is a very simple knowing. We know whether something's wise or unwise, whether it's helpful or harmful. It's not a, it's just, there's a knowing. It's like when you're angry, there's a knowing in you that this is not helpful. It's not a long elaboration. It's not a, you know, a lecture. It's a simple like, why am I doing this to myself is what thought will then say about it. But the sense of it from the intelligence point of view is release. Very simple knowing, a very simple, very simple, is simple, the simple, simplest thing. And the questions which keep our seeing clean because the contaminant quality of the virtual reality is just a thought away. So most of us who have lived and abided within thought for as long as we've been alive, it's very difficult to know whether we're seeing from thought or we're seeing from the intelligence of discernment. And that's very confusing. So sometimes questions like, how is this scene being distorted right now? A question like that gets us very quiet very quickly. Because how is this scene being distorted takes us to the quiet so that we can see the distortion. So asking that question sets us up as a way to actually be able to see the distortion, which means the discernment, discernment, the seeing is seeing the noise. So that's, what, that's the side we want to be on. We want the seeing to see the noise. We don't want the noise to be determining the seeing. You get, you get that? <clears throat> or, what is this scene dependent upon? Is it dependent upon a good, nice feeling? What is it dependent upon? Is it dependent upon somebody else's authority? Or my own opinions? You see, again, we have to get very quiet to see what is leaning up against it. Now, some of us come to that point, we say, and this is, this is one of the many egoic ways for us to dis- delay. We say, uh, you know, I'm not good enough to be spiritual. You know, I'm not holy enough. There's too much crap in me. I'm a liar. You know, I distort things. I don't know, I get drunk once in a while. I'm not good enough, right? So I'll take you to the scoundrels of Zen. You know the scoundrels of Zen? (laughs) We'll read about them. (laughs) They'll make you look like saints. And in this tradition, we have Angulimala, who had killed 499 people before he became enlightened. So if you want to match your unworthiness to that, 
we've got some history for you to right so forget that seeing doesn't depend upon purity does the sun depend upon whether you're pure not to shine on you obviously not so too awareness is not dependent upon your purity to shine the light shines regardless but the problem is is that if we are too selfish in our life too self-concerned in our life the view and the intention of our life blinds us only to our thoughts about life that's the problem because selfishness requires a lot of drama a lot of the echo chamber coming back to recertify that I'm around that I can be selfish it's a recertification of my place on earth selfish as it may be and so that view and intention keeps us in place it's the view and intention that keeps us in place not the selfishness so let's go now let's let's meet the hindrances from discernment from seeing the first thing seeing does when it's when anything arises in mind is it learns because it's it's receptive it's just seeing there's not a there's no uh, struggle involved it just sees what there and there and the seeing by definition a let us say a byproduct of seeing is the understanding is the learning that accompanies it and so when a hindrance arises anything other than the learning is your virtual reality struggle is your mind's attempt to do something with it so that you can be okay without it and so we have to be very pure in our willingness to know our interest in our interest in something if we want the seeing to be pristine see and so when you meet a hindrance you're going to see you know wow you're going to you're going to let it in the body you're going to feel what it feels like as it comes into the body through the first foundation of mindfulness you're going to feel where it in the body it's being felt what it does within the body because the body is part of that intelligence the body isn't devoid of that intelligence it's part of that intelligence and therefore it holds the same sensitivity <coughs> some traditions call the hindrances sin as soon as you have that relationship to it you have a grouping you can be assured anytime there's a grouping and moralism and righteousness at play that you're in the wrong reality you can be assured of that that your reality is fractured 
like a china dish or Humpty Dumpty. It's been shattered. And as you come into the as the hindrances play forth, you get a sense of the minds looking for a good and bad solution to it, and you just let that go because the discernment knows that any groupings of good or bad is the wrong reality. It's, it's the mental reality that's forming there. It just knows that. It's a very simple knowing. It's a knowing. It's a very simple knowing. Something just happened there. Right? It's that simple of a knowing. It's not like a hand just went through air and I... No, it's just, it's just that. That very simple knowing. And we begin to see... We learn that when there is a hindrance, an obscuration of mind, and we start forming around it, collecting ourselves around it, the only way we collect, can collect around it, the only way we form around something is through words. We create a narrative about something. That's how we form around it. That's how we include it within our life. We include it within the story of our life. And so we tell ourselves something about it. I can't have this in my life. This is no good for me. You see? Left alone, it isn't a part of your life. We make it a part of our life through the story we're saying about it. And discernment sees that. And it leaves it alone. Listen to what it does. It sees and it leaves it alone. It sees just this. See how beautiful it is? You see how absolutely simple it is? How elegant in its simplicity? But we also see what having a hindrance does for me and my story. What it does to build upon me. Oh, just like the poem I read. The sins of the world, the hindrances of my mind, define the values of my mind as well. The nobility of my mind are in reaction to or in response of the hindrances of my mind. Not knowing the hindrances, I would lose the values. I would lose my meaning. Because the hindrances give me meaning. I have to overcome this nobility. It gives me all of that sense of it defines the sense of me and the purpose of why I live. It gives me hope for a better me. Because look at the trash of the me that's here in the middle of the hindrance. And the discernment 
sees that. Discernment sees that. What does it do? Nothing. <laughs> the seeing is enough. And what begins to develop so beautifully that this is where this comes from. is the complete faith with the faith for and with that seeing. And we're not responsible for it. Not in the sense that we have any control over it. It's completely outside of our control. If we try to control it, we can be sure that it's going to limit the seeing. Because the scene has nothing to do with us. We are a voice within the scene. Remember that. The best thing you can do is to shut up and let the scene see. <laughs> see, the doors get closed on us. gives us hope. What we still long to be, the hindrances still give me some sense of what we still long to be. Let's just look at one or so or more of the hindrances specifically. Greed. Take the little, just a little one. <laughs> So let's just, okay, so passive discernment is simply allowing greed to be seen. That's passive discernment. It's not adding, it adds nothing to the greed. It adds no reaction to the greed. It adds no countermeasure to the greed. It simply sees the greed. And it sees, what does greed look like? It looks like I'm thirsty all the time. It looks like there's a breakdown in any sense of unity. Because I want something. There's going to be a breakdown in unity. Of connectedness. That's what it looks like. And, and the seeing sees that. It looks like now is not the time. The future is where I want to go. It looks like there's no value in the present. The present holds the yearning. The future holds the goal. Where am I going to put my attention? I'm not going to put my attention on the yearning. There's nothing there but the pain of what I want. I'm going to where the goal's going to take me, which is where the, the next moment, the future, will satisfy the need. This is all seen. This is how thoroughly we have to see it. Not we, that it has to be seen. It has to be seen this thoroughly. We have to get out of the way so that discernment can see this thoroughly. You see, if we're in there struggling, oh, I'm greedy again, God, non-attachment, what do I need to bring to non-attachment so that, you know, the, 
the 10,000 ways that we inhibit clear seeing through our practice, we'll never see what, what greed is. We'll never see it. It won't have that simple knowing in our heart, no, this is, I'm not doing this anymore. This is crazy. As long as I didn't see it, then I was going to be compelled by it. But now I've seen it. There's no more compulsion. It's like fire hot. I don't have to, every time I look at it, I don't have to have this fear of the flames. I just know not to put my hand in it. It's not, it's no aversion, it's just wisdom. No, I'm not putting my hand in fire. I'm not going to shoot somebody in the head. I'm not doing that. That's not a, just not. It's simple. It's very simple. Very simple. It gets to be very simple. And so this is how it looks as it comes back. And we feel the greed. We feel the greed, okay, in the ground of our body. Now, the beauty of this is twofold. First of all, we've embodied the greed. So it's the fear. We're not keeping it out away from us turning away from it, trying to avoid it. We're letting it consume. Come on in. And now it's grounded. It's like a trap door. Because as soon as it gets into your body, it's grounded. Which makes, it keeps us flying, the thoughts from just flying in the direction that they would like to go, which is future, give, you know, what I'll do when I get whatever I want. So now it's grounded. Beautiful, actually. That first foundation. And then in the quiet of that ground, it sees the pleasure of the thought of where it would like to go. And within the ground of the body, the ground of the body is completely stationary in the present. So you have the present now denying the thought-filled thought future. The present the present and the future are, cannot coexist in the sense that you can't believe in the future and live in the present. Because to live in the present, you see the thought also comes from the present. And so this desire uh, simply has nowhere to go when we are looking at desire rather than acting from desire. A little bit of sense did that make? So the first foundation set it up so that my thoughts weren't just a waterfall, a rapid. So that there was some relativity to the present and the thinking about and that relativity then, now you have a choice. You can go with the thought and forget the present, which is what we mostly do, or you can discern and see what happens here because discernment is always in the present. Seeing is never somewhere else. So now the body is alive within its own seeing. 
And now the greed attempts to convince you that the future is more important than the present. This thought is more important than the aliveness itself. That's what it comes down to. That's how silly the comparison is. A thought is more important than the base, the hub, the central place of your aliveness. And yet it's amazing how many times we'll go with a thought. That just seems to be the way many of us have to do. And you can see, within the body, you can see the whole identification coming. I, I, you're, you're sitting in the present, just the present, just discernment, just body, just grounded intelligence. And the thought of something in the, in, I, I, where does that come from? You look around, you... There's just this. There's just this. Where does that come from? I want. <laughs> and discernment sees that. And when it's seen, once seen, forever seen. Never to be convinced in the same way. Never. Never to be convinced in the same way. We have to ask ourselves, though, because many of us are at odds with ourselves. We're not fully embodied. We don't believe in, our, we don't believe in anything but our own will and strength and volition. And that's when we bring in skillful means. We'll call in skillful means ways to balance the energies, to keep ourselves in place so that a little bit of seeing can happen, so that the firefly of light can show us what is there. Just a flicker, but it's a flicker, and a flicker is a flicker. It's better than none at all. And so whatever ways that we, but the thing that is we get so dependent because the sense of self then claims ownership of that flicker of light. And it says, well, I did that. Boy, watch what I can do the next time. And it builds its whole practice around the strength of its own volition. When it was the scene that saw. There's nothing wrong with skillful means. It's just few people ever relinquish it because it's so inviting. We can maintain our power and seemingly advance forward. And we love that. Because now we've got the muscle of our own will and the accomplishment of our own insight. Not very many people want to be quiet. Not deeply so. But there's really only one way out of this virtual reality. 
and I wish all of you the portal. Can we be quiet for a moment or two? No discouragement, not a thought. Stand up in your courage, in your confidence. I am not talking to anyone out there who doesn't have the capacity to do this. Whether you have the intention to, that's your own. But you have the capacity. And it's too easy to say, oh, I can't do this. He's talking over my head. And infuse your confidence within the doubt of the hindrance. We have no time for that. Okay, if there are any questions or comments about anything, I'd be happy to. After emptiness, how is yeah, it? Yeah. After emptiness, where's the engagement? Okay, so where's the engagement after emptiness? I mean, it's like, that's what scares us. See, now I just want to show us that we will come up with a thousand different mental reasons why we shouldn't do this. And this is, they're blocks, they're doors, they're false, they're false uh, obscurations. They're false because they're mentally induced. And here's one of the big ones. Like, I'll become passive, I'll become lethargic, I'll become, you know, where will, what will be driving me if it's not my will, if it's not my force? Because we've only lived with our will and our force and our effort, we don't believe that there's anything else that will catch us if that's released. And we hear the uh, invectives of the culture that says, you, you know, you're going to be lazy, you're going to be a nothing, you know, do nothing, all of that sort of thing, and you go... Well, I better keep going the way I'm going. At least this way I earn my living. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, all of that is part of the fear tactic of the mind to keep you engrossed in yourself, to keep things going the way they've always gone. It has to be tested. It has to be tested. I know of no one who has awakened that is passive, that is a do-nothing, that is lounging around. They are very engaged, fully engaged. If you think about it, don't think about it, but if you did think about <laughs> it, what would happen is that all you would lose is your thought. You would be taken out of the reflective way that we live. We, 
we see what we think needs to be done and then we act upon that conclusion and you would enter a non-reflective life in which you would abide in the moment rather than reflecting upon the moment. Just as the things of life move without your will, so you move, will also move without your will. Just like the wind blows, just like the galaxies revolve, evolve and revolve, just like everything in the whole cosmos is moving without your will, so too you will move without your will. Because that's what life does when it's lived as life. When it's reflected upon that little gap between life being lived and what I need to do within it is actually your motivation. It gives you the sense of you being motiv motivated to life or not and then you're acting from the moment. But there just is always a little bit of delay, isn't there? Like just a half second or a second or a couple of seconds delay as I ponder what needs to be done, as opposed to being, listen to the word, spontaneous or creative, immediate, Life moves. It's a different placement in life. It's either dead center or peripheral. We choose peripheral because we can then, doesn't life feel like it's outside of you? Like oh, life is happening to me? Well, that's because we're peripheral to it. It doesn't feel that way when you live it this way, like a geyser, you live it dead center. If you live it dead center, it doesn't feel that way. <coughs> yes. Can you talk about how to work with relationships to others? Especially like a relationship. Less of what? Especially like a love or romantic relationship. Romantic relationship <laughs> and what I've been saying. Uh, well, you don't force philosophies upon anything. That's why we're not a proselytizing religion. Uh, so that's the important thing. And you give as much faith to ignorance as you do to wisdom. Do you understand what I just said? That is, you don't try to, you don't try to be oppressive to ignorance. You don't try to force it a certain way. Ignorance has its own evolution out of itself. And the deep abiding knowledge of that allows things and everyone to be the way they are without feeling your pressures upon them. From that point of view, it can only enhance a relationship that is confusing when you don't feel someone else leaning into you all the time. Okay, enough for tonight. Thank you all very much. Okay, so let me just encourage you to take the homework and to apply the homework. Homework isn't something that you put in your pocket and never look at. If you do that, it says an awful lot about your intentions.
towards spiritual work. If, this is, if you're hungry in this thing, this will be one of many things that you will focus in on to evolve in the way you know you have to. So don't be timid or passive in your homework. Engage it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.